that each heart would be open and each mind would be receptive. I pray, Father, that you would speak to the hearts of each and every person that's here, that we might know more and more who we are in you and that we might be conformed to that image of Christ. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Philippians chapter 3. I want to teach a little bit on knowing God. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, begins the chapter talking about his heritage and his pedigree. And he had quite an uh, impressive background, family history, and so forth. But he talks about putting those things away. Verse 10, here's his reason, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul said that the driving force in his life was to know God. If you think about it, everything in this life and in the next comes down to knowing God. Certainly the most important way to know God is to know that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and our sickness and our well-being in every area and to make him the Lord of your life. That determines your eternity. That's the issue between heaven and hell and it's the only issue. It's Jesus. But also, knowing God is, a, uh, is an important factor, a critical factor, if we're going to walk in divine health. There's a lot of the church that knows Jesus as the forgiver of our sins, but they don't know him as our healer. There's a lot of the church that doesn't know or doesn't believe that our material well-being was paid for by Jesus on the cross as well. And if you think about it, everything that we have record of in the Bible, the whole purpose for the Bible was to reveal God to us, is to help us to know God. From the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, man lost his knowledge of God. And over time, it, the world was in a state or in a condition where nobody knew God. So he reached down and made a covenant. He appeared several times and made a covenant with Abraham. And over the 45 years from age 75 when God first appeared to him until age 120 when he departed from this earth, God revealed himself over and over and over again to Abraham. He revealed himself in his character. He revealed his will. He revealed himself as much as he could, which shows us that God's not trying to stay hidden. He wants us to know him. He wants, it, he wants us to receive the revelation that he's provided for us. Now, there are some things that took place after Abraham established, or God established a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham walked with him for the time that he did. Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, wound up being sold into slavery into Egypt elevated as prime minister or what we would know of as prime minister of Egypt through the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams 
brought the rest of his family down into Egypt, and they stayed there for 430 years. They started off because they were the relatives of Joseph to be highly respected. But over a period of time, they became slaves. Now, when God reaches down into this earth to change that, to free Israel from slavery, he's dealing with people that don't know him. You may recall when he appeared to Moses after Moses had gone from the highest of heights, from Pharaoh's castle, palace, to killing an Egyptian and having to run for his life. Then he spends 40 years on the backside of the desert. Now, folks, if you know anything about the desert, you know the backside's pretty hard to distinguish from the front side. <laughs> I guess the backside of the desert means the worst place or the worst possible conditions you could be in. But that's where... Moses spent 40 years of his life was in the backside of the desert. But that's where God appeared to him. A lot of times what we think is the backside of the desert is just a place for God to reveal himself. So when he appeared to Moses, he began to say certain things to him. Moses' first response is, who will I say sent me? God said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses says, basically, what name do I give for you? Moses didn't know him any, any more than anybody else did. And so God begins to share some things with him. It's interesting to me. We won't take time to read it this morning. But if you look at the, the, uh, the account of Moses speaking to God, God appeared to him out of a burning or in the midst of a burning bush that was not consumed by the fire that, that he saw. He told him the whole thing. He told him everything that would happen. He said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But he won't let you. He won't relent and, and agree to that. But then I'll show my mighty power and wonders unto Pharaoh, and he'll finally let you go. And he tells him that he'll let you go with silver and gold. You'll spoil the Egyptians. God planned that out. That was just as much a part of Israel being released as anything else that makes up that great story. God's always planned for his people to be above and not beneath. That's the part of Abraham's covenant that many people don't know. Many people know God as their father, but they don't know how good a father he is. So Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. You remember the story about how in order to convince Moses that God's hand is upon him, he asked him what Moses is holding in his hand, and he said a stick. So he throws the stick down at God's instruction, and it becomes a snake. And then God tells him, reach out and take it by the tail, and it becomes a stick again. Now, folks, I don't know how you change wood particles or wood molecules into snake molecules. But apparently that's not a big deal for God. And so when Moses goes before Pharaoh to demonstrate God's power, he does the same thing. He throws his rod down on the ground. It becomes a snake. Now, the two 
counselors, magicians that King James speaks of that were with Pharaoh at the time, they threw down sticks and they turned into snakes too. Now, I don't know how that happened. Does the devil have power to turn wood molecules into snake molecules? There's a lot of things I don't know. But rather than dwell on the things I don't know, I go back to the things that I do know. Well, even that didn't deter the power of God in that situation because Moses snake turned, uh, ate, all, ate both of the magician's snakes. Now, the, the things that, that God did, the miracles that he performed, were not just to convince Pharaoh, but to convince Israel. See, Israel didn't know God any more than Pharaoh knew God. And so these things that took place by the hand of God through Moses to bring about the exodus and the releasing of the children of Israel from bondage, these things were signs and wonders against the gods of Egypt. Even the snake, we assume that the snake was a cobra, which was a sign of Pharaoh's ruling power. And that's what gives significance to Moses' snake eating theirs. God is the supreme ruler. And so then the plagues start taking place. The first one was the Nile River turning into blood, you may recall. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River or what they believed to be the spirit of the Nile River. Because when it overflowed, the one time of year that it overflowed, it brought life to the, to the nation. And without that overflowing of the Nile every year, there would have been a continuous famine and Egypt would not have been anything like the world power that it had become at that time. Well, that didn't do it. So then Moses calls for frogs, which was another one of the idols that Egypt worshipped. The magicians, trying to show their power, brought forth frogs too. And after a certain period of time, Pharaoh asked Moses to pray to God to remove these things. And he did. And these symbols of idol worship that had swamped the land were left in piles days for days and weeks to stink the whole nation as a demonstration of God's power over the Egyptian false idols. Next thing that took place is Moses hit the, hit the dust of the earth and it became lice. Now the magicians couldn't duplicate that. And they recognized and told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Well, after that, there were locusts, which was an attack on the gods that they worshipped and entrusted their annual crops to. The locusts destroyed all of the crops of Egypt to show that their gods were inferior, if they existed even at all. There were several others. I don't want to go through the whole list. I, I doubt if I could remember the whole list, to be honest with you. But there were things that took place. After the third plague, Israel was separated 
from the plagues that came upon Egypt. So the people of Israel, again, in God attempting to reveal himself to his people, is showing his mercy and his power to keep them separate and unaffected by the other plagues. It talks of darkness. They worship the sun or the sun god. And it speaks of darkness that came upon the land of Egypt that did not affect the land of Goshen where Israel was. And the Bible refers it to darkness that you could feel. Folks, this is not just the sun going behind a cloud. This was a supernatural act of God's power. They had cattle gods. You may remember when Israel rebelled against God while Moses was on the, at the top of Mount Sinai. They called for a golden calf so that they could see something that they were worshiping. Well, the cattle became sick and died as an example or a display of God's power. Every one of these plagues was an attack, specific attack, against something that, is, that Egypt worshipped. And even when we get to the last of the, of the plagues, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh was thought to be, and, and the propaganda presented was that Pharaoh was a god himself. And his son, who would be the next Pharaoh, was deity as well. But he couldn't stop his firstborn from being killed while Israel instituted the Passover. Now again, after the children of Israel are released, sent forth, Psalm 105, verse 37, I believe it is, said they came forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. No sickness, no disease. And they had spoiled the Egyptian people of their riches. God knew and had told, uh, told Moses that Pharaoh would change his mind. He even told him in the specific place to camp, to bring the children of Israel to camp. Militarily, which Moses was probably a military man, through his relationship with Pharaoh's daughter and being brought up in the palace. He was probably a military leader, and there are some records in the Egyptian ancient history writings that could and probably does identify Moses, certainly not by that name, not his Hebrew name, but identify him as a great military leader. Well, Pharaoh sees where the Israelites are camped, he recognizes that it's an uh, impossibly poor decision militarily for Israel to be there. They're completely exposed with no place to run. And so Pharaoh comes out after them. The people begin crying out to Moses, pretty much saying their goose is cooked because of what the situation is around them. Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, the Lord will show himself strong and mighty in this day. And then he turns to God and God says, what are you crying unto me for, Moses? 
your stick snake just needs to be stretched out over the waters and the waters will part. And it does. They do. God brings the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. And Pharaoh sends in all of his army and his chariots after them. And in another, the final act of display of great power relative to Pharaoh in Egypt, the waters come back together and drown the most powerful military force on the face of the earth. They didn't even have to throw a rock to defeat this great military power. Well, Israel is really excited about that, as you could well understand. Chapter 15 of Exodus tells us about the songs that they sang because of God's goodness and so forth. But immediately following that, I'm going to pick up here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Immediately following that, and remember, God still has the same purpose in mind. It's great that Israel has been delivered. But if God doesn't reveal himself, if he doesn't make himself known to Israel, then this event, as great as it is, is just going to be a story that they tell their children about times past when, when God helped us. But God brings Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. Not just so that they can be free, but so that they can know him. The purpose that God sent, sent Moses to Pharaoh was let my people go so we can go out into the wilderness and worship our God. So God still has work to do to show them who he is. They know he's the one that can control the, the plagues and everything related to the plagues. But who is he to them? So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters for they were bitter. There's a, a question whether or not that just means unpleasant or poisonous. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Now the statute and ordinance are unchanging principles. When the Bible says God made a statute or an ordinance, it means he revealed something that is and always will be. And here's the ordinance and the statute that he instituted. Verse 26, he said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Notice it says that God is in the active tense in the King James. I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have put on the Egyptians. That's a permissive verb, not a causative one. It literally says, I will not allow upon you the diseases which have come upon Egypt. Now, the translators of the King James do a marvelous job for 99% of the translation that they gave us. But the translators are affected not only by their knowledge of the language, but by their understanding of God. So the translation we have 
the King James translation we have is the product of how well the translators knew God. Not just knew the language, the Hebrew language. Well, it seems that some of their knowledge was lacking. Because they thought that God made people sick and God could heal them. That can't be the case. The Bible tells us over and over again that God doesn't change. One of my favorite verses in the, along this line is where God said through the prophet Micah, I'm God, I change not. Well, if he doesn't change, James tells us there's no variableness in God, neither the shadow of turning. He's good and only good. So if God doesn't change, he can't be making people sick and healing them. One has to be good, the other has to be evil. Which one is it? Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. God says healing's the good side. The Bible teaches us that sickness is satanic oppression. Sickness is always of the devil in some form or some fashion. The Bible says that God created everything in the earth in six days, and after that he made an end of his creation and rested. That means if anything was made by God, it had to be in those first six days of creation. But when God comes to the end of the sixth day and looks at the earth and says that it's very good, there's no sickness to harm mankind. There's no thorn on a rose bush. There's nothing that can bring destruction, tragedy, or ill to any of the rest of God's creation. Well, when did sickness come into the earth then? It had to be after the fall. It had to be the result of sin. Now, that doesn't mean sickness is the result of individual sins always. Sometimes it is. But sin, or sickness is the result of the original sin which opened the door to all of unrighteousness. So here where it says in verse 26, King James says, I will put none of these diseases on you that I have put on the Egyptians. He's talking about freedom from, protection from disease. All the diseases of Egypt that they know about. It's not referring to and it's not talking about God being the one that makes people sick. We know that for a certainty because the last phrase says, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. It doesn't say, I'm the Lord that maketh thee sick sometimes and maketh thee well other times. He says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. One of the greatest things you can know about your heavenly father is which side of sickness and disease he's on. And he's always on the healing side. So the people rejoice. Now notice, this is the first time that God speaks directly to the people of Israel. To identify who he is. There are seven times where God names himself. This is the first of them. He says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Chapter 16 of Exodus tells us about how God provides manna in the wilderness for the children of Israel. Chapter 17 tells us about Israel's first battle. I want you to look with me to Exodus chapter 17. Beginning in verse 8, it said, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now the Bible says that all these things in the Old Testament are given to us as types and shadows. 
or examples. So if they're examples, they're revealing something about God to us. It's showing us God's character and nature. It's shown us already what God will do to deliver his people. He went to great lengths through the plagues of Egypt to deliver his people. Then that was capped off by the Egyptian army being drowned in the Red Sea after Israel had gone through on dry land. It shows us God has care for and is concerned about our physical needs and well-being. When in chapter 15 that we just looked at, the waters were cleaned or made sweet. Then God provides for the children of Israel with manna to reveal that he and only he is the source of their sustenance. And he gave them specific instructions on how to handle the manna and when to gather it and so forth. Here in chapter 17, they're going to come up on their first battle. Now, folks, these are not warriors. These are slaves. The slaves never went out with the military in Egypt. Last thing you'd want to do is put a weapon in a slave's hand. So how are they going to fight against their enemies? Verse 9, Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand in the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Notice most of the things that took place to demonstrate God's power, to reveal God's power and his character to his people have to do with this rod. The rod is a symbol of the name of Jesus for us. We'll talk about the importance of that in a minute. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. This word Jehovah Nisi is a name that God gives himself. Moses is the one that attaches the name to him. But it's because of what God has revealed himself to be, who he's revealed himself to be. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. What does the position of, a, of the leader's hands have to do with anything when it comes to war? Moses must have information from God about what he's supposed to do. Or else who would ever come up with the idea that while you're out, while the people are out in the middle of the battle... I'll stand on top of the hill and hold my hands up. As great a military leader as Moses may have been in Egypt, I'm sure holding your hands up during the battle is not part of the way to win. But what does this signify for us? Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.8, he said, I will that all men would pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It symbolizes a dependence on God. 
It's reaching out to heaven where your help comes from. Now, when Moses names this place Jehovah Nisi, it's calling to remembrance what God did. Jehovah Nisi literally means the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our banner. Well, what does that mean? We don't know too much about banners. But you may remember if you've seen medieval um, battles, knights and soldiers and that type of thing, everybody flies their own colors. Everybody flies their own banner. Movies that we've seen and historical records that we have of the Civil War here in America. The carrying of the flag was of great importance. Now, folks, you need to understand something. There is no uniform, per se, for soldiers to wear. And if there are uniforms for them to wear, and some of the the more advanced and wealthiest nations did have things like that, there's nothing that would indicate that someone else can't dress like they do. And so the banner was all important because it identified who they were fighting for, what flag they were fighting under. Even the, the soldiers, the American military now, have insignias on their uniforms in some place or another, even in such a manner that sometimes they have to cover them for special operations and so forth. But the banner or the insignia today identifies who you're fighting for. So when Moses calls this altar Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, he's not just saying we fight for God when he directs us to. He's saying our banner always means victory. Our banner always means victory. Well, you remember the story of the children of Israel. They come to the promised land. Twelve spies are sent into the promised land to spy out the territory. Ten of them came back saying the land is good just like God said that it was. And God has made some mighty specific claims about the promised land. The children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, had already spoiled the Egyptians of their wealth. But then God said, I'm bringing you to a land in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8. He says, I'm bringing you to a land that has great resources. It's watered with the rains of heaven. It doesn't depend on the Nile River or any pumping mechanism to get water from one place to another. The land I'm bringing you is the land that's watered by the rains of heaven. Again, signifying our de- uh, their dependence on God or their need for dependence on God. But he says, it's a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you may dig brass out of. So God not only wanted the people to have the wealth of Egypt, but he wanted them to have the resources of this land that flowed with milk and honey. Folks, I want you to realize something about the character and the nature, nature of God. He doesn't want you just to barely get by. He's provided for his people. And remember, these are examples for us. These are things that we're supposed to learn from. He wants his people not only to have the wealth of the world, but the resources of the earth. So the 12 spies go into the land of Egypt, uh, the, the promised land, excuse me, the land of Canaan. Ten of them come back saying it's what, the land is what God said that it was, but we can't have it. 
There are people that are there that are stronger than us. The more I think about that, the more I study that, the more it makes me shake my head. Is there anybody there that compete with, that could compete with, or fight with, or be victorious over the land of uh, or the the uh, army of Egypt? Well, certainly not. Nobody in that crowd would even think to be so stupid as to attack Egypt because of their armies and the strength of their armies. Did they forget? That God took care of the military might, the greatest military force on the face of the earth without Israel even having to throw a rock? These people were terrified by what they saw. Two of them, two of the twelve, Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it. Don't worry about how big it is. If God's with us, if he's on our side, everything will turn out just the way he said. But the congregation, the multitude, believed the majority report. And so as a result, they forfeited entrance into the promised land. All of Israel now is, will spend 40 years in the wilderness, wandering from one place to another. Folks, if you look at a map at the places that they went, and remember, these are millions of people. Two to seven million is, are the estimates that most scholars will give. Even if it's the smallest number, the two million, it's kind of hard in this small place, this small area, that the maps are identified that they went to. How do you keep lost? Or how do you stay lost when you've got that bigger crowd? But they were lost as far as not having a home. But even so, God took care of them even down to the point where it says their clothes didn't age, neither did their feet swell. He divinely provided for them until all of that generation from age 20 and up died out. Now, 40 years later, they come back to the edge of the promised land and they find their first real test. Turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. We'll start with chapter 1. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise you over this Jordan, thou and all these people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses. All they have to do is walk on it. Now folks, remember again, these are types and shadows, examples for us. Their example was to physically walk on the land. Well, what's our promised land? Our promised land is a land of spiritual blessings. We don't have a geographic territory to put the soles of our feet on like they had. But do you remember the Bible said the just shall walk by faith? It says we'll live by faith. In other places it says we'll walk by faith. Every place you walk by faith. Every place you put your spiritual foot through faith upon, that's what you can have. What land we walk on by faith is determined by what we know of God. And it's determined that way in everybody's life. 
you can have what you're willing to take hold of by faith. But if you're not willing to take it by faith, you're not going to get it. So God gives Moses some instruction. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Verse 8, this book of the law, meaning the word of God, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now I want you to notice something, folks. This is the same Joshua that fought against the Amalekites. In Exodus chapter, what was it, 17? Now Joshua's experience, according to their history, was that when the leader raises up his hands, they win the battles. But here's God speaking to Joshua, telling him that the, the secret to success and remember, God's no respecter of persons. So if this is the secret of success for Joshua, it has to be the secret of success for you and me too. And that is to speak the word. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. That means keep saying it. That thou shalt meditate therein. Meditation, as far as the Bible meditation is concerned, has to do with the spoken word. When you speak the word of God, you're meditating on it. How many of us have found situations in our lives where we began to say what the Word says and all of a sudden we see something from that Word that we didn't see when we started off? In other words, God reveals Himself through the spoken Word. He reveals Himself as we speak His Word. And that speaking of His Word and the revelation that it brings to our heart, our spirit man, the real us, brings us into prosperity and success. It's amazing to me how many people in the church world don't think God wants you to have anything. They balk at the so-called prosperity message because they don't know God as an abundant God. But if God didn't want you to prosper and have success, why did he tell you how you can? So Joshua sends two people into the promised land. Not 12 spies like it was before, but two. And two go into the promised land and come upon a, a harlot called Rahab. And I want you to see this with me in Joshua chapter 2. They come into the city of Jericho, and the city of Jericho has these huge walls around them. They're 100 feet high and 50 feet thick, according to archaeological discoveries. This is a huge symbol of defense. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with why some of the 10, maybe all of them, 40 years before, said, we can't take this property. 
of this territory. But they come to the city and they're secretly spying things out, finding out about the defenses and so forth. And they come to this harlot, this prostitute. And I want you to see what she says. She says in Joshua chapter 2 verse 9, she said unto the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, meaning this land, meaning our home. I know that God has given you this land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. That means they're scared. That means the people in the city of Jericho behind this giant wall, this wonderful, perfect defense, this impenetrable barrier. Notice why she says it. Notice why she says the people are afraid of you. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did under the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now, folks, this is the attitude of the people that the ten spies said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so we are in ours. In other words, the report, the evil report that the ten spies came back with 40 years before this point in time was an out-and-out lie. It was what they thought, genuinely thought, I'm sure. They were sincerely expressing their opinions and their belief. But it had no basis in fact whatsoever. They forfeited 40 years of their lives. A whole generation died out into the wilderness because they believed the lie. That's why it's so important for us to know the truth. And God's word is truth. Well, you remember the story. Joshua brings the children of Israel into the promised land in just the same way, just exactly the same sign as the parting of the Red Sea delivered them from Egypt. They go to the Jordan River, and as soon as the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, as soon as their feet touched the edge of the water, the waters parted, backed up for 15 miles, stopped flowing, so that Israel could go across on dry ground. And that was well within the sight of the walls of Jericho. So these people that are afraid of what happened 40 years before, now they're going, oh my gosh, here they are again. Folks, no matter what things look like for us, no matter what circumstances we're faced with, or things, situations we're going through, There's always something going on that we don't know that the devil doesn't want you to know about. There's always something because God always makes a way. There's always something that would turn this situation around if we just knew about it. Now, oftentimes we won't know about it specifically. We won't know about the circumstances that may not be as they appear. But we do know that God is on our side. And because he's always on our side, it doesn't matter what the circumstance is that we don't know. He'll always see us through. The 103rd Psalm says about verse, uh, 
I don't know, six or seven, somewhere around there. It says, I am the Lord that redeemeth thee. Most of the words that are used is true with the, um, uh, the statement in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, I am the Lord that heedeth thee. He says, I am the Lord that redeemeth thee. Most of those words are used in a first person aortist tense. Now, I don't expect you to know what that is. But here's what it means. It means it's a continuous action, always present term. So where it says, I am the Lord that healeth thee, it literally means I am the Lord that is continually healing you. Where it says, I am the Lord that redeems you, I am the Lord that continuously, continuously redeems you. In other words, God's redemption is not just something that happened. It's something that is always ongoing. It is always ongoing. And since it's God, it never stops. It never comes to a place where God says, well, okay, that's it. I don't need to continue to redeem you anymore. You finally arrived. The power of God was designed and therefore works continuously, never-endingly, always, no matter what it looks like or how we feel. Always. So Joshua brings the children of Israel through the Jordan River on dry ground, and he camps within sight of Jericho. And he tells the people, here's our battle plan. And folks, I think it's interesting, instructive, certainly, that the biggest battle was the first one. God didn't let them start with some smaller cities and work their way up into thinking that they're stronger militarily than they were. Let's start with the big wall. Now that goes contrary to anything and everything we would think about how things work. But since they weren't going to win the battle based on their army anyway, why not start with the biggest one? So Joshua tells the children of Israel, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to march around the city one time each day for six days. And on the seventh day, we're going to go around seven times. Now, here's the one requirement. You can't say a word. Now, the way the Bible speaks of it, that Joshua told them they couldn't speak, we would assume that means they can't speak while they're walking around the walls of Jericho. But most probably, the language suggests that they can't say a word for a week about anything at any time. Now, remember the ten spies when they came back from the land of Canaan, the promised land, from spying it out. They came back saying, we can't take this land. And that's what kept them out. Even though they had the power, even though they had the ability, even though the people were afraid of them, even though God was on their side, they said, we can't take the land. And it was their confession. It was what they said that ruled them. It was what they said that kept them out of the promised land. It wasn't any army's military might or force. What kept them out is because they said the wrong thing. So Joshua tells the people, 
you can't say anything for a week at any time about any subject. Everybody has to keep their mouth shut for a week. Folks, just the, the fact that they were able to do that and live up to that requirement shows the supernatural nature of God in this situation. But I have no doubt that God used Moses and Joshua during those 40 years in the wilderness and others as well, maybe Caleb too, who was the other of the 12 spies that came back and with, Je with Joshua said that they could do it. They could take the land. I'm sure they've been telling the people what we say is all important. What we say, what we believe, and therefore what we say is of great importance as to the results that we'll get or won't get. So day one, they go around the city. Nobody says a word. I am sure that if Rahab accurately portrayed the, the terror of the people, as soon as they see this group of Israelites coming toward them, they're thinking we're under attack by the people that we already know this land belongs to. That would be a dark day, I would imagine. But they don't attack. They circle around the city and don't even stay in place. They go back to their camp. Day two, they see them coming out again. Now the people behind the walls are probably thinking, well, yesterday must have measured us up. Today's the real push. Get ready. But they walk around the city and go back home. Day three, the people in the city are probably thinking, we don't have any idea what these people are doing. <laughs> We've never had anything like this before. So they go around the city the third day and go back to their camp. Day four, people in the city are probably getting a little bit bolder. So there may be some standing on the wall screaming at them as they walk around. Yeah, that's good. Take another lap. <laughs> day five, they come out again. Day six. By day six, not only are the people in the city, they must be completely confused. Probably still on their guard, but without a clue what these people are doing. Any insults that are hurled toward the children of Israel go unanswered. Day seven. People in the city are probably thinking, here they come again. But then they start a second lap. Okay, guys, get ready. Something's different about this. Then lap three. Then lap four. Then lap five. Then they make a sixth time around. Finally, they go around the seventh time. And at Joshua's instruction, the people gave a shout. And the Bible says the walls fell down flat in their place. Here's what that means. If the walls are 100 feet high, but 50 feet thick, then if the walls fall down flat, they've still got a 50-foot barrier. When the Scripture says that they fell down flat in their place, 
that has to mean that the earth opened up and they went down vertically. So that the 50-foot width of the wall becomes a bridge from the cavern in which the walls had to fall into. And the Israelites take the city. The Bible doesn't tell us it was a tough thing for them to do. It doesn't speak of the, the seriousness of the battle. It just simply says that the children of Israel took the city. Now remember, folks, God's revealing himself to us. There's something about this story that's instructive for us. We've seen two times. The first time they fought against their enemies after they had come out of Egypt. The second story is the first time they fought against their enemies when they came into the promised land. Now, there were other battles. There were other things that took place. But these two points in time are very critical in the example that it brings for us. We see one enemy that was defeated by hands lifted up to heaven, signifying our dependence or their dependence on God himself. That should be the example that we follow. The second example is when they kept their mouths shut and accepted what God said until the appropriate time that they shouted. And folks, the appropriate time to shout is when the walls are still up, not after when they fall. Most people want to wait till the walls fall down and then they want to shout. Folks, anybody can shout then. It's like the children of Israel when David went out against Goliath. After Goliath was destroyed, after he was dead, after he fell as a result of the rock that David threw at it and that it sank into his forehead, the scripture says. It says when he fell, all of Israel shouted, and they started running after the Philistines to destroy them. Folks, anybody can shout when the giant falls. But it's the ones that speak and say and do the right things, doing what the Word says, facing the giants. That's the victory that inspires others. Turn with me to Philippians Chapter 4. Notice verse 6. It says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Let me tell you what started me on this, how I got direction for this service this morning. Over the last several weeks, maybe three, three weeks or so. There have been some times when I'm, well, every time it's happened, I've been by myself at home. That out of nowhere, not because of what I was doing, I've been doing different things when these times have occurred. There have been times where I was studying, there have been times where I was praying, but there have been other times where I was just watching TV, not doing anything spiritual whatsoever. But over the last three weeks or so, there have been several occasions, four occasions, where I would just become overwhelmed with the goodness of God relative to my healing. And I couldn't keep quiet. 
I didn't think about it, but each time my hands have shot straight up into the air and I've shouted hallelujah or glory to God or something to that effect. I think the reason it's happened while I'm alone is it would scare the bejeebers out of my family if it happened when I were sitting there. My wife is nervous anyway. I don't need to add to that. But I've just been overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And every time that it's happened, and again, I can't emphasize enough, it's not because I'm trying to make it happen. Any of us can shout because we decide to shout. And that's a good thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. I don't mean to be throwing off on it. But these spontaneous things that have occurred would not let me keep my hands down or my mouth shut. I wish it happened all the time. It has nothing to do with the symptoms in my body. It's not like when that happened, the symptoms would decrease. I have noticed no change whatsoever relative to these events, these four times. It's just that I couldn't contain myself. I just couldn't contain myself. Not that I was trying. Again, I hope you get the right idea about this. Again, Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 8, I, will, I would therefore that men would pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Here it says to be careful or anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Folks, let me ask you a question. If the word's true, if it's absolutely true, if everything the Bible says is just exactly the way that it is, and thank God it is, but I want you to consider it. If it's true, if God has met all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, if Jesus died for our sins and made us the righteousness of God in him, if by his stripes we were healed, not going to be healed, but by his stripes we were healed. If those things are true and accurate and real, what do we have to be concerned about? Every one of us should be walking around with a song on our lips. Ready to lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. To reach out to the one who helps us. What is there to worry about if God is on our side? What is there to worry about if the word of God is true? What care do we have in this world? If the Bible really is telling us the truth where it says God gets involved in the smallest details of our lives. In fact, one scripture says that God, the, the, here's what the, the original language means, that God intermeddles. He meddles in your affairs. I don't know about you, but that's fine with me. He gets involved in just the smallest details. Because we are his. His banner, his victory. Is ours because of the name of Jesus. 
I'm going to close with one final scripture. It's over in 1 John chapter 5. Verse 4, it says, For whatsoever, literally whosoever, is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Now, folks, please notice that verse does not say our faith brings victory. It does, but that's not what this is saying. It says this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It says faith is the victory. Which means when we stand on God's word, when we appropriate God's word, when we confess and believe in our heart that God's word is true, then the victory is ours while we're speaking it, not when we see things change. Things will change. They will have to change and be conformed to the word of God. But the victory is when you step out in faith and believe. The victory is yours when you find the word of God and confess it over your life and over your situation. That's the victory. The victory is the walk of faith, not the change that walking in faith brings. The victory is the, the, the blessedness, the privilege of standing on God's word when it looks like everything around you is contradicting it, contradicting that word. The real victory is to claim healing when you still look sick. The real victory is to claim provision when it looks like you don't have enough. The real victory is when you step out in faith because that's when you're taking the land. That walk of faith is how you put your soul on every part of the wonderful things, the blessings that Jesus purchased through us, for us through the death on the cross. That's the victory. It doesn't look like victory to people on the outside. It doesn't look like victory to people that don't understand, even well-meaning Christians that don't understand. But that's where the victory is. The victory is when we claim the promise. When we come to the realization of that, when we come to the knowledge of that truth, then it becomes easy for us to live up to what Paul said. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That becomes a piece of cake when we understand that our faith, the expression of our faith, the confession of our faith, that in itself is the victory over anything and everything the devil has. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your word is true, Lord. Thank you. We bless you with all of our soul. And we forget not your many benefits. You forgive all our iniquities. You heal all our diseases. You redeem our life from destruction and crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy. You satisfy our mouths with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Thank you, Lord that we are upheld by the power of your word, literally the word of your power. We declare victory because we believe. We declare healing because we believe. We declare our righteousness because we believe. We declare provision, abundant provision, because we believe. 
Oh, Father, let our lives represent and reflect those who trust in you. Those who walk by faith and those who praise you in the midst of the circumstances. We lift our hands, Father, and we lift our voices to break the power of the enemy over our lives. We thank you, Father, that it's so. In Jesus' name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Let's all stand. Please remember about healing school tonight. Barry and Brenda are going to be ministering tonight. They'll be a great blessing to you. God bless you. Have a great and wonderful day, and we'll see you this evening.